Well, good morning. My name is Bryce Hales, and I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Well, we are going to spend the next little while uh, looking at God's Word together, and so if you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 131. This summer we are um, doing a study, uh, a sermon series in the book of Psalms, and um, there are, there are a lot of different psalms. There are songs that uh, God's people have sung uh, in times of anger, in times of despair, in times of joy. There are some, some of the psalms are sung uh, when there was a new king that was coronated. Um, psalm 131 is a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm talking about uh, the experience of somebody who is content. And so let me invite you to stand with me as we read Psalm 131. It's our practice here at Resurrection OC to stand when we read God's word. We hear so many words in our world. And we just want to set off these words as special and as unique. These are the words of God himself. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, we come this morning to, into um, to church and to your presence, and we hear your word. Some of us are skeptical. Some of us would love to find contentment, but don't think it's possible. God, we are busy people. We are distracted people. Would you give us ears to hear what you are saying in your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. So contentment. I don't know what you think when you hear the word contentment, but I came across a parable this week um, in a book by... Uh, John Ortberg, who's an author, he wrote this story. He said, Once there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the Golden Arches. There she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little toy that someone in a fit of marketing genius named the Happy Meal. May I have it, please, she asked her parents. I must have it. I don't think I could live without it. No, her parents told her. The toy is trivial. It's a trivial little thing that just enabled the price of this package to be raised well beyond what it's really worth. It's not in the budget. We can't do it. But you don't understand, she thought. She knew that they would not just be buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. They would be buying happiness. She was convinced that she had a little McVacuum at the core of her soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in the Happy Meal. So she explained... I want a Happy Meal more than I've ever wanted anything before, and if I get it, I'll never ask for anything again ever. No more complaining, no more demanding. If you get me that Happy Meal, I'll be content for the rest of my life. This seemed like a pretty good deal to her parents, so they bought it, and it worked. She grew up to be a contented, grateful, joyful woman. She lived with serenity and grace. Her life in many ways was hard. The man she married turned out to be a louse and he abandoned her with, with three small children and no money. The kids too were a disappointment. They dropped out of school, sponged off her meager resources and eventually left without a trace. When she was an old woman, social security gave out. 
She had to live from hand to mouth, but she never complained. She had gotten the Happy Meal. She would think of it often. I remember that Happy Meal, she'd say to herself. What great joy I found there. Just as she had predicted, it brought her lasting satisfaction, and she was grateful for the rest of her life. Now, if you believe that, I have a used car I would like to, uh, uh, you might be interested in purchasing. Contentment, right? I don't know what you think about the word contentment. Um, to be honest with you, to <laughs> be perfectly honest, on Monday morning, I said to my wife, I don't know how in the world I'm going to talk about contentment. Uh, number one, I don't really have much experience with it. Um, but the word contentment sort of strikes me as like a fortune cookie word. Um, word that sounds maybe really great but doesn't bear any connection to actual life. Uh, it's just maybe pot and pies mumbo jumbo. But I've spent much of this week thinking about contentment. And upon further reflection, I think I'd be hard pressed to come up with a topic that is more relevant to us in South Orange County in 2017. Because we are discontent people. We are people who want more and more and more. And we are distracted people. A friend sent me an article. I'm going to read um, just one more thing. Um, a friend sent me this article this week. Uh, this is written by somebody, I don't, I don't know if the, the author is a Christian. It was written, uh, published in the Dallas, in a newspaper in Dallas, not a Christian publication. And uh, the author says this. He says, by favorable calculations, I misuse about 93% of my time. The resulting guilt is a poisonous, low-level radiation that creates a self-powered shame spiral. In fact, I'll waste an entire day searching the internet for dopamine hits to medicate the fact that I'm not getting anything done. I'm a distraction junkie. Does that resonate at all with anybody? He said, in many ways, I'm representative of an American contradiction, incredibly busy and willfully slothful. People say I'm the busiest person they know, but I know that my days actually produce, and it, what my days actually produce, and it feels like not much. Even though I have a to-do list the size of a hell's roll call, I revert to shopping for stuff I don't need, and nibbling social media pellets. And this is how he summed it all up. Look at the long faces looking back at me all of a sudden. This is how he summed it up. Distractions are refined sugar for the soul. Brief, enjoyable, and crashing. Now, again, I don't know if that resonates with you, but what stuck me, what kind of punched me in the gut, was that final sentence. Because what I think most of us, under a certain age at least, are probably familiar with what he's talking about. Spending a lot of time doing things with our technology that doesn't actually amount to getting real work done. And when we think about that, it's easy to think, well, that's a productivity issue. You know, you need to get a better, like, to-do list system into your life, right? Or the issue is a self-discipline issue. Um, or the issue is one of priorities. But let me read that last sentence again. He said, distractions are refined sugar for the soul, brief, enjoyable, and crashable. Has it ever occurred to you, has it ever occurred to me, that my distractibility is an issue of what's actually going on in my soul? A couple weeks ago, my wife and I were on vacation. We got like 48 hours, just the two of us without kids. And so we lay at the beach for two days, and we had been at the beach for, I don't know, maybe, let's say two hours the first morning. And we're both lying there reading our books. There's literally nothing to do but read. 
And after about two hours, I looked over at my wife and said, how many pages have you read since we got here? And um, she said, like, I don't know, like 150. Um, that's my wife. And I flip back, I'm like, I've read six. And she's like, there's, what are you doing? I'm like, I just, I'm, I'm so distracted. Like, I'm thinking about things all the time. I can't just read a sentence and then continue on to the next sentence without stopping to think about something else. I'm a distracted person, and my distraction, I think, points to something much deeper than what's on the top of my to-do list or my priorities. It points to a deep inner restlessness in my soul. Can I state the obvious? Uh, we long for contentment. Um, I mean, nobody maybe more than people who live in South Orange County, if I can just be frank. I mean, the reason that we live where we live is because we want to be content. We want to be satisfied. The reason that we work at the places we work is because we want to live the life that we want to live. We want to be satisfied. We want to be fulfilled. And yet, having been a pastor in this community for about two years now, I think this is true of myself and it's true of the people I talk with. We want to be content, and yet we are not content people. We are busy people. We use our busyness to distract ourselves from what's really going on in our hearts. We want to be content, but we don't experience it. And in Psalm 131, we see a person. King David wrote this psalm. If you, you, know, you may not be familiar with the Bible, but King David was, you know, he's, he's the famous King David of Israel. And what we read here is somebody who says he's content. Now, maybe you're like me, and you're going, okay, I'm about ready to check out. Um, because contentment seems like one of those things, like, yeah, that'd be great if you can pull it off. Um, but it's not realistic. Maybe when my kids are out of the house, maybe at some point, maybe, you know, for there's like a week of vacation, that, you know, circumstances might one day align and allow me to get to a place of contentment. But that's not really me right now. Um, or maybe you're cynical. You think that uh, contentment is for people without much ambition. Uh, contentment is for people who are just kind of happy with the status quo. Well, here we have a person who says he is content. And I don't know anywhere else in our culture that's going to even promise you or offer you contentment. Because the reality is we live in a culture that is fine-tuned, finely engineered to produce discontentment in us. I mean, every marketing advertisement that's thrown at us is, is, is finely you know, targeted to say, you need something that you don't currently have, right? Um, everything that we encounter says, there's something that you need that you don't have. And so if you're tempted to uh, check out, I just want to press you for a minute. Can you imagine what it might feel like to actually be fulfilled, to be satisfied? In Psalm 131, we get to hear the inner thoughts of somebody who has found what not even the most interesting man in the world has found. You know, what's the most interesting man in the world with his tagline, stay thirsty, my friends, right? He's saying, you, you know, you're never gonna find contentment in this life. And yet David has found it. So two things that I wanna show you in this passage this morning, and the first is what contentment is, and then secondly, how do we actually get contentment? So what is contentment? Well, verse 2 says this. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
a calm and quiet soul. Uh, side note, let me, let me just ask this question because I don't want to take this for granted. What is, what is a soul? Um, you know, you may ask the question, like, does an animal have a soul? Does, does my dog have a soul? Uh, do I have a soul? Um, I think the way that we often talk about ourselves as humans is that uh, we have a body and a soul. We might think that I am a body and I have a soul. Um, if I could just say this without being overly morbid, have you ever been to a funeral? Um, have you ever been to a funeral and in the room there is a body, right? And yet the person is not there. Um, the, your loved one, your friend, your relative is not there even though the body is there. What is the thing that is missing? Well, the soul is the thing that is missing when the body is there, uh, but the person is gone. When the Bible talks about the soul, it's talking about who you really are in the fullest sense. Um, who, who you really are, um, deep, deep down, that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the soul. Okay, so contentment, to be content is to be at rest to find rest in your soul, to find rest in the deepest part of who you are. To be content is to have a calm and quiet soul. The contentment that the Bible is talking about here is deeper than just, um, well, I just came off a great week. I uh, felt really fulfilled. You know, maybe I mowed the lawn on Saturday and then kind of surveyed my domain and just felt this sense of accomplishment and contentment, right? It's not a, um, the contentment that, that Psalm 30, 131 is talking about is not a contentment that is simply the result of circumstances. Um, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians in the New Testament said this. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Contentment is a deep, lasting satisfaction. It's not dependent on what's going on in your life. And David says, my soul is content. And then he goes on to say, my soul, <laughs> he uses this image, he says, my soul is like a weaned child with its mother. Uh, it's a pretty like a <laughs> human image, isn't it? Um, you know, without trying to offend anybody, what is a weaned child? A weaned child is a child that was nursing and is no longer nursing. Uh, I, I remember this moment. I don't remember. My wife and I have four kids. I don't remember which one it was, but I have a distinct memory of uh, one of my boys, very, you know, still nursing as a baby, and we're having fun in his room. We're lying on the carpet. We're rolling around, and I kind of get really close in his face, and I'm smiling at him. And, uh, and I get really in his face, I smile at him, and he like latches onto my nose. <laughs> Neither of us got what we were hoping for out of that experience. Um, but that's, that's what a, uh, a nursing infant does. They're, they're, they want the milk, right? They want a, a, a hungry child uh, who is not weaned in his mother's arm, is rooting around, is trying to get the milk, is a discontent child. But a weaned child, has what they need. Um, David is saying that a content person is like a weaned child with its mother. You have what you need. Your soul is at rest because God is a good father and he provides what you need. Um, a weaned child, a content person, is somebody who's not anxious about where their next meal is coming from. A weaned child 
Uh, a content person is not worried about what's going to happen at work next week. A content person is not somebody who worries when the other shoe is going to drop. And, um, you know, today is the day that somebody's going to find out that you've been faking it all along. Um, a wean child isn't anxious about what's coming next. A wean child is content. A content person has a soul that is at rest. How's that sound? <laughs> okay, well that's great, but how do we get contentment? Um, the second thing that I want you to see in this passage is David says, um, he shows us how to be content. He says, I've calmly quieted my soul, which implies that this is something that he has lived into. He doesn't say my soul is content and quiet. He says, I have quieted my soul. I have found contentment. There is something, and you know, if you know anything about the Bible, we know that this is not universally true of King David, right? But so contentment is something that he has had to seek after and he has had to live into. So what can we learn from him about becoming content people? Well, he finishes the short psalm with this simple statement in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Simple. How do we find contentment? Hope in the Lord. Now again, I don't know how that strikes you. Uh, it sounds simple. It, it might sound overly simplistic. Um, because we think of the word hope as kind of being a synonym for wish. Um, you know, I used to be a college pastor and students would, college students would say things like, I haven't studied at all for this test, but I really hope I pass. Um, or like you might get in your car and realize, oh, the gas tank is on empty. I really hope I can make it to the station, right? Hope is just this like wishful thought that we, I, you know, it'd be nice if this happened, but who knows? It's a long shot. Or maybe we think of hope as like a dream, um, kind of an aspiration, something that we hope one day, you know, might come to pass. Like uh, the other day I was driving through a, uh, my parents' neighborhood, and there was this Porsche Speedster park there. And I said to my kids, one day, kids, one day, I just hope I can drive one of those once. I hope, right? I hope. I don't know. But in the Bible, hope is something much different. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something completely different. The word hope in the Bible, it means to trust in, or to wait for, or to long for something. In the Bible... What's more interesting than the word hope is the thing that is hoped in. When we talk about hope, the emphasis is on the long shot. Like, I hope this happens. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about, uh, it's encouraging us to hope in the Lord. It's not some vain hope that something will someday happen. When the Bible says, put your hope in the Lord, it doesn't mean because, you know, there might be some outside chance that all of this stuff will turn out to be true in the end. It's saying, put your hope in God, because he's the only one who can never disappoint you. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. Put your hope in what is certain, even though you don't yet fully possess it. See, in the Bible, hope is a certain thing that we just haven't taken full possession of yet. Uh, Matt White was a, a baseball player. 
Uh, Matt White didn't have a spectacular baseball career. He played for seven different major league teams, and he played a couple years in Japan. Japan. He was a left-handed pitcher. Um, he never really made it in the majors, but he did make a little bit of money. And in the early 2000s, um, Matt White had a, an elderly aunt who uh, was starting to face health problems. And so Matt, in order to help his aunt out, purchased this piece of property that she owned in western Massachusetts. The land was, it was pretty remote, they didn't think it was worth much, and Matt bought 50 acres from his aunt for $50,000. You know, not a whole lot of money for 50 acres, right? And uh, Matt White began to think, well, I own this land, I might as well uh, build a house on it. So they started clearing the land and they discovered that this land was just covered in, in, in rocks and these layers of rocks. It was such hard ground that uh, they, didn't, they didn't know what to do with it. So they got a geologist out there to survey the land. And the geologist did a survey and he said, um, this land, or this rock in your land, it's called Goshen Stone. And uh, it's used in landscaping, it can be used for sidewalks and patios. It sells for about $100 a ton. And then the geologist estimated that he had about 24 million tons on his property. Okay, $2.4 billion. <laughs> now how's that for contentment? Um, is anybody thinking, why doesn't that sort of thing ever happen to me? <laughs> But the truth of the matter is that if you are a Christian this morning, that already has happened to you. If you are in Christ, you are sitting atop a pile of inexhaustible resources, and you haven't yet even begun to scratch the surface of all that Jesus wants to do in your life. And Christian hope is living like that is true because it is even though you haven't entered into the full possession of all that Jesus promises to do in your life yet. My soul is at rest because my hope is in God. That's what Christian hope is. You know, one of the things that um, becomes clear, if you spend any time reading the Psalms, uh, as, as we've done um, at our church this summer, is that the Psalms are songs, you know? I mean, the, the Psalms weren't originally written to preach a sermon on. I mean, you can preach a sermon on each of the Psalms, uh, but that's not why they were written. Uh, they weren't written as like a, a theological treatise, although there's a lot of great theology in the Psalms. They were written as songs. And for thousands of years, and even still to, to this day, God's people have sung the Psalms. And one of the things that that means is that uh, the songs that Jesus sung were the psalms. And if you spend any time reading the Gospels, reading the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, it very quickly becomes clear that Jesus knew the psalms. And Jesus loved the psalms. And there were many times when somebody would challenge him or someone would ask him a question, and immediately what comes out of Jesus' mouth is a psalm. So we've been talking about having a rested soul. And so this week as I was thinking about, you know, all of this about what does it mean to have a soul that is at rest, I began to get curious about what, is, what did Jesus say about, about the soul? 
And I discovered, as far as I can tell, there's only one place that Jesus ever talked about his soul. He says a lot of things about our souls, but there's only one place that Jesus ever talked about his own soul. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's about to be arrested, and he knows he's about to go to the cross, and he's about to be crucified. And he's there with his friends who are about to betray him. And Jesus says this, My soul is deeply troubled, even to the point of death. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as strange, but it strikes me as very strange because if Psalm 131 is about having a soul that is at rest because our hope is in God, I mean, if anybody has perfectly um, had a soul at rest, at peace with God, it should be Jesus, right? Uh, I mean, the, the author of the psalm, King David, couldn't sing this song with complete integrity, right? Um, his soul was not always at peace. His hope was not always in God. But Jesus clearly was. And so why is the one person who had a soul who was perfectly at rest because his hope was perfectly in God, the one time he ever says anything about his soul, he's actually saying the opposite of what Psalm 131 would lead us to believe. Why does he say, my soul is so troubled, even to the point of death? Why, does, why, is, Jesus, why is Jesus not content? Well, what we see here is that as Jesus approaches the cross, Jesus is preparing himself for something that he has never experienced. Um, and that's not simply death. But when Jesus goes to the cross, he is preparing to experience something that he has never experienced for all eternity. That is the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, is about to turn his back on Jesus. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus is not going to have the face of his Father. And he is not going to know and experience the perfect love of God. Why? Why does Jesus not have the face of God. This is the reason that the Christian hope isn't just a far-fetched dream. This is the reason that the Christian hope isn't like a, one day I hope that this all turns out to be true. Because when we talk about hope, we're talking about something that we really wish will happen someday in the future, but we don't know if it will. But Christian hope is based on something that has already happened in the past. When Jesus goes to the cross... Um, on the cross, Jesus gives up the face of God. He gives up the face of God so that God will never turn his back on you. Uh, Jesus, as he goes to the cross, his soul is deeply troubled. Why? Because Jesus is hanging on the cross in order to bring rest to your soul. Jesus experiences the turmoil that we should experience so that we can experience the rest, the peace, the contentment, the soul at rest, the hope in God that Jesus earned for us. And that's why it is not, I mean, did anybody think when I said that, um, you know, if you're a Christian, you are sitting on a piece of land worth $2.4 billion, that that might've just been a little bit of an exaggeration. That's the reason why it's not. Because your hope, if you are in Christ, is based on something that has already happened in the past, and the effects of it are now what, is, what God is working out in human history. You have a Father who gives you everything you need. If you're a Christian, you have a Father who gives good gifts to his children. 
If you're if you're a father, you don't have a, a, a if you're a Christian, you don't have a father who's stingy, who uh, you know reluctantly gives you things only just a few minutes after you really needed them. You have a God who delights in you, who loves you, who knows what you need, and because He loves you, He refuses to let you be satisfied with anything that will ultimately bring you harm. You have a God who gives you everything that you need. When you have Jesus, you have everything you need. That doesn't mean you have everything you want. But living with hope as a Christian means learning to, to go out into the world, realizing that every single thing I have is a gift from God. Uh, if I turn on the switch and there's electricity, I can smile because God is giving good gifts to his people. The sunshine on my face is something I can be thankful for. You might learn to be thankful for vegetables. You might learn to be thankful for the car that you already own and is already paid for and not discontent with the fact that you drive the lamest minivan in your neighborhood, speaking autobiographically. <laughs> How about this? You might, be, you might learn to be content with the body that you actually have now instead of the one that you think is six months of hard work down the road. You might learn to be thankful for the sunshine and the beach and the ocean instead of annoyed at the fact that there are a thousand other people there crowding out your space. Can I tell you the paradox of contentment? I think that we all know this. Um, I don't think you have to be a Christian to, to see that this is true. I think you probably have to be a Christian to understand why what I'm about to say is true. This, the paradox of contentment is this. True contentment, true happiness in life, lasting fulfillment, satisfaction that, go, that weathers the ups and downs of life can never be pursued directly. It can never be pursued, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, a couple of years ago, we took our kids to Disneyland. We have four kids. Um, I think it was our second son. It was his birthday. It was like two weeks after his birthday. We, we took the whole family to Disneyland uh, for his birthday. Uh, with a family of six, four little kids, going to Disneyland is ex an expensive production. We had to take both the mother-in-law and both the grandmas with us. It was the worst day of my life. Um, it's so expensive. There's so much like pressure riding on this to be awesome that it was terrible. Um, my wife and I are like in this passive-aggressive fight, like arguing with each other every time we pass in line. Every, it was terrible. I didn't know my mother-in-law was going to be here when I, I, she didn't know this was happening. Maybe she's not now. It was awful. Because we thought it was going to be so great. We had invested so much hope and expectation in this thing that it had to be great. It was so freaking expensive that it was terrible. Okay, that's what happens when we set out to pursue happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, enjoyment in life. There's so much pressure riding on it that it just can't live up to the hype. Have you ever, on the other hand, had a day where, you know, maybe mid-afternoon, you just kind of look at your spouse, your friend, whoever you're with, and say, this has been a really great day. Um, it kind of sneaks up on you. Right? It takes you by surprise. You didn't expect it. You know, it's just a normal day. And it was just a really great day. 
The secret of contentment is that it cannot be pursued directly. And I think we know that, and I think we also have to acknowledge that that is such a foreign idea to those of us that live in Orange County. Such a foreign concept. True contentment can never be pursued directly. And here's why. Here's why. A religious person is a person who obeys God because he thinks that if he obeys God, she thinks that if she obeys God, that God has to make him happy. Okay? And so you do all of these things, and they don't pay off, and you're discontent. A religious person is a person who obeys God because he thinks that God will make him happy. But a Christian person is a person who is happy in God and therefore finds contentment no matter what life throws at them. You see the difference? I mean, they might like almost identical on the outside. And yet one per- have you ever noticed that the people who um, often seem content in life are the people who shouldn't seem as content as they are? You know, the advice of the most interesting man in the world is actually right. Stay thirsty, my friends. God loves you too much to allow you to find satisfaction in anything less than his goodness, his truth, and his beauty. And we run ourselves ragged and we distract ourselves trying to cover the discontent in our souls instead of turning to him. Contentment is not found in our circumstances. True contentment comes from placing our hope in God himself. And so God will use our thirst, he will use our struggle, he will use our discontent. Our discontent is the mercy of God. Our discontent, our thirst, our lack of satisfaction in things that are not God. We should thank God that he does not allow us to be satisfied with things that will ultimately hurt us. God uses our thirst, our struggle, our discontent in order to bring him to uh, bring us to him where we will find lasting satisfaction. I close with this story. A friend of mine who's a pastor in another part of the country told a story about a college student in his ministry. And uh, this guy, he was kind of the star um, athlete, um, you know, kind of the, the ultimate Christian youth group kid. He led Bible studies. Uh, he was handsome. He was charismatic. He was well-liked. And this um, man in college developed Hodgkin's. Hodgkin's is a form, I think, of cancer. And um, he had to undergo cancer, or uh, chemo. Uh, he under, went, underwent chemo. He, uh, he lost his hair. His girlfriend broke up with him. He lost his strength. He's in a hospital bed. And in the middle of the night, he gets up to go to the bathroom. He's overwhelmed with fatigue. And on his way to the bathroom, he collapses and lies there on the cold linoleum floor, hospital gown open behind him. And this man said to his pastor, it was then that I finally learned what grace is. He said, I had always thought of myself as this great guy, but now I'm helpless. I'm not leading any Bible studies. I haven't felt like praying. I can't do anything for anybody, but I still have God's love. I still have God's forgiveness, and I still have God's commitment. And my friend said, if you talk to this man today, he would tell you, I love Hodgkins. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. 
but it taught me who my Savior really is. How about you? Do you know who your Savior really is? God has literally moved heaven and earth. He has come to earth as a man in Jesus in order to find you, in order to show you what it looks like to really live, in order to point you to God, in order to die on the cross to forgive you for your sins, in order to enable you to put your hope in God where you will find lasting contentment and rest for your soul. That's the good news, friends. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this surprising and wonderful song. And God, if uh, we are honest, uh, we are distracted people, we are discontent people, we are people who in many ways will look anywhere other than to you to find satisfaction in life. God, we want more and we want more and we want more and we think that the problem is that we haven't quite found the one thing yet that we really need. But it's close. God, would you show us that we will only be content. Our hearts will be restless until they find the rest in you. God, would you help us to run to you. God, if there is anyone here this morning who has never put their trust in you, would you help them this morning to say, God, I don't know if this is even real, but if it is, would you help me put my trust in you? Help me hope in you. God, if there's anyone here who maybe has been walking with you for years, who would say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. But in the day-to-day realities of life, we think that what we really need is a bigger house or better-behaved kids. God, would you help us to repent? Would you help our church to be a place where it is safe to repent? Would you help us as a church to be a place where we encourage one another? Not that we compete with one another, but that we encourage one another to continually put our hope in Jesus. God, we can't do that on our own. And so if it happens, it would only be because you have been at work in our midst. So we pray that you would work in Jesus' name.